shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, this is it, the last show before Thanksgiving, and i got to say to everyone out there, I want to welcome you to Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero, and with me always is the charming, the pleasurable, the entertaining, that's right, I said it entertaining, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? Thank you, man. I'm I'm great. Uh, you you read it just like I wrote it. I appreciate that. I mean, once a year you got to get a good introduction at least once a yeah, year. So, at least, Kelly, at you least. probably don't you probably don't realize this, but uh, I keep track of these things because I guess I'm an um, a data geek. But this is our hundred and thirty third show. Wow. Yep. We're on track wow, to be at one fifty over... by our third year yeah. anniversary, which is April third. We'll be yeah. at the. Uh, the uh, magic number of 150 shows, but today is 133. So congratulations! And over the last uh, couple years, I've had a really great time of uh, working with you, and uh, I think we've had some fun. And I want to thank you for being my partner. I love you, man. I, it's that I love bromance. You. That bromance is coming out. <laughs> it's the bromance. That's right. And I don't care how much you outweigh me, I will always be the bigger spoon. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Kelly, you know. Uh, you know, as we get into this holiday season, one of the things I think that we always look at, you know, from the provider side, from the leadership side, is we always want to make sure that our employees are the safest that they can be. Yep. And if there are organizations out there that are not putting employee safety first, I think we have to really uh, question those organizations because it's a very, very tough job that you know, the EMS providers do, but you know, there was a story in the news, you know, and it seems that they keep happening. I read one up in Boston, um, you know, th that EMS providers are getting hurt in the back of ambulances mm -hmm. and an ambulance crashes. And you and I have yep. pontificated on, you know, is this due to long hours? Is this due to, uh, you know, people not getting the rest they need? Is this due to what is it? And I think it's, it's really a dilemma. So I think this show, we talk a little bit about safety. I yeah. think we talk about developing a culture of safety and, uh, you know, we try to give our folks the best information we can. Yeah. You know, and, and I think the problem there with, with safety is, is obviously multifactorial. Um, we, if we just took a couple of measures to, um, limit our, our, uh, risk, uh, in vehicle driving, um, and, and change our shift structure so that we're not constantly working 48 and 72 hour shifts in some of these smaller services, uh, and, and mitigate the effects of fatigue would go a long way toward, uh, I wouldn't say just a long way. I would say it would it would radically uh, reduce the the number of EMS injuries and fatalities. Um, but we've got to change the culture to be able to do that. You can't just uh, <clears throat> you've got to make the people affected, the the ground crews, um, buy into that system, uh, and and that's a problem sometimes. Well, let me ask you this question though, because I think this is really important, and and I think that you talk about changing the shift schedules, and I and I agree with you. I think that there does need to be changed. I think in some systems, the days mm -hmm. of twenty four hour shifts are over. But if we move twenty four hour shifts to twelve hour shifts, we've got to compensate our people so they don't lose any money, and that'll probably exactly. make me very popular with the workforce. But let me ask you this question, Kelly. So when we think about this this safety of driving or the safety of going into domestic violence scenes or going into drug dens or going into how much of that is the ego and the bravado of not only the provider, 
but the the peer pressure to say so you staged on that call or what you couldn't get there in eight minutes and 59 seconds so when we think about safety how much is our own ego keeping us up in that seat to say that we're driving at the at the you know the 27th hour a a lot of it is um you know and and there's the the financial factor as well that you you alluded to uh you you go talking about reducing shifts and and going from doing away with the 48 and 72 hour shifts uh the first you know the first thing people are going to say is no man you're taking away my money i like my 24 my 48 my 72 hour shifts um is that how they sound (laughs) do they sound just like that (laughs) yeah uh i'm envisioning a booger eater when i say that but no it's it's uh a lot of people are wedded to the system that they're they're in right now and they don't that they can't see past their own experience and their own agencies um and, you know, the old saying goes, if you've seen one agency, one EMS agency, you've seen one EMS agency. Um, but, yeah, there's a whole lot of bravado and, and you know, uh, we're tougher than you. Uh, and, and if you can't hack it, get out of the EMS going on when you talk about improved safety measures and, and creating a culture of safety. Uh, I think part and parcel of it is, is we recruit the wrong people. You know, and I've gone back, we go back to that all the time. And, and I've said that before, but we recruit the wrong people. Uh, and when you get type A personalities and adrenaline junkies are the people we specifically target for a career in EMS, uh, there's going to be some degree of peer pressure toward the people who, uh, who they think can't hack it. Um, I think the first thing is we start, we start recruiting a different, uh, demographic of people, uh, and those people will be more, um, more receptive to, uh, to a culture of safety. Yeah. But you know, I, I mean, I think it goes even beyond that. I mean, because I can remember and, uh, you know, in my younger years, I can remember, you know, I supposedly I needed the stage for a domestic violence and I look at my partner and they're like, go ahead. The domestic violence scene is probably one of the worst that we can get into because they're just so unpredictable. But what what makes us do that? What makes us think that we're stronger or we're more powerful or we're, you know, bulletproof to those situations? But how do because you know, because we select for that and we pound it into, into we pound it into them in paramedic schools. Well, not only do we do we not foster the caregiver mindset, we f- we foster this lifesaver mindset and, and teach every paramedic that they've got to be you know the the uh, the all seeing all knowing paramedic god of everything that they survey. We foster that that aura of invincibility uh, in the guise of of confidence. Uh, and I don't think that's the attack we need to take. But so let me ask you this then: How do we? All right, so let's let's take the ego out of it. So there's there's providers out there who are going to say, "I'm just too tired," but I've got to say something. But I don't know how to do it. How do we now give them the you know the I guess the confidence or or the the knowledge necessary for them to say, you know what, my health, the health of my crew, uh, the health of my patient is a lot more. Um, uh, is a lot more important to me than getting in this ambulance at the 27th hour. So w- what are the tips? What do we give those people to say, you know, you've got to step up and say something about this without having the stigma of being uh, whatever the, you know, the outcome is. 
Well, I think it starts from the top down, you know, the, uh, which is total opposite of the way I, I normally think on things, uh, that, that movements need to start from the ground up. But as far as fostering the, the culture and making it okay to, to say uncle and, and call for, for, you know, crew rest and that sort of thing, uh, comes right from the top. You have to make it known, uh, as a leader and a manager that, your crew safety and your patient safety is paramount and that you're willing to bear the financial brunt of taking a crew out of service, uh, and, and putting on a, a an on-call crew or, um, you know, that your people come first. Um, <clears throat> and the only way to do that is to, is to implement a, a fatigue mitigation, uh, policy of some sort, uh, and let it be known that you're encouraged to, to make use of that policy and, and squash any rumors that, that, uh, people are getting punished for it and, and that sort of thing. It needs to be a no fault policy. Uh, that's the way it is at Acadian ambulance. Um, it is reviewable after the fact and not before. And, and I think that's extremely important when a crew says I'm tired, we need to rest without question. They are routed to the nearest station, uh, that has a bed and they're expected to be horizontal with their eyes closed for the next four hours. Now we have crews that abuse it. Yeah. But that's a, that's an individual disciplinary issue that is not, that has nothing to do with, with the policy itself. Uh, and, and that those things have to be, uh, addressed on an individual basis. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the, the mindset needs to be that dispatch, uh, can't send you on the next call when you say, I'm, I'm tired. I need to rest. I'm not safe to drive anymore. Um, they can't question it and, and they don't. Um, so that goes a long way toward encouraging people to actually make use of it. Uh, and if you're not cognizant of the risk to EMS providers, um, uh, from fatigue, uh, related accidents and, and vehicle crashes, uh, then you need to open up the internet and a newspaper now and then because they, those, uh, stories are here every single day. Uh, there's not a week that goes by that we don't have a, a firefighter, a, a EMT, a paramedic crashing an ambulance, either because of, of an intersection and accident where there were running lights and sirens and didn't need to be, or they were fatigued. Uh, in, in Ohio, just a couple of days ago, firefighter paramedic in Liberty Township was uh, injured in a, a, a seriously injured in a vehicle crash. Right. His car reared off the highway. And, and they don't know that Adam Gilly was asleep at the wheel. On the other hand, um, they do believe that fatigue may have been a factor in the crash, which they're, they're still investigating. Uh, and if Adam was run to the point where he dozed off at the wheel, um, then something needs to be done in, uh, about that sort of thing. Something needs to be done within the agency to change the culture and make it say, look, it's not okay to run our people into the ground until they fall asleep at the wheel. Um, and the other thing you have to remember is, is, is these things get reported. Uh, we learn about them because it identifies someone as a firefighter or a paramedic that crashed in an ambulance. That kind of thing makes the news. How many are falling asleep at the wheel after they get off shift on their drive home that we never hear about? Yeah, that's a really uh, great point. Yeah, that, that sort of thing. It probably is underreported to a great degree, and, and the problem is much more prevalent than we actually uh, know right now. Kelly, let me ask you a question because the the policy that you talked about at Acadian really kind of you know piqued my interest and you know I really like the accountability you know the expectation is that uh -huh. you know dispatchers have to put you down if you're going to go down 
uh, yeah. you know, the accountability as it's looked at after the fact. What I mean, what's the requirements for looking at it? One, if they're going to review it, what are they going to say? Are they going to say, well, wait a minute, he was only on shift for six hours and he needed to rest? Or is yeah. it the fact that, you know, you're in, I mean, and then secondly, I, uh, uh, the follow-up question to that, or maybe you take this one first is, is there criteria to say you can only call out for this when you've uh, accomplish this, this many calls or these many hours or, or how, no. how do you, how do you make that work? It's, it's, it's on the, on the provider to, to call when it's, when it's necessary. We have, a, a several general policies that I don't think you find codified in the policy and procedure manual. Um, but they're generally accepted ways of doing things. Number one, uh, so are the, they, are they the, uh, wait, when you say that, are they just they're, like, they're, they're just like, tradition they're, so there, there's nothing on paper it's just that no, this is no, the way the, it is the, the fatigue mitigation policy is on paper um and uh but but the the culture of how it's implemented there are some you know there are some unspoken rules uh but they're not hard and fast they 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 put a lot of uh a lot of pressure on the supervisors to make the right call uh, and I won't say just pressure. They put a lot of trust in the supervisors to make the right call. For example, you know, our, our downtime policy, that's what we call it. When you call, you know, all you have to do is message, uh, message dispatch and say downtime and you're, you're sent to the nearest station. Um, but, uh, me, I work a 24 hour truck and, and I may be uh, 70 miles from my station, uh, when I really feel fatigued, uh, and I wear a CPAP. I can't rest without a CPAP. I, I, sleep is, is totally ineffective, and, and I wake up hours later with a sore throat and not feeling like I've slept at all. So there have been occasions where, where I was in the city and, and called for downtime. I said, look, I need downtime after this next call, and they route me to a, a city station. My CPAP is at my home station in De Quincey, you know, and, and I'll call a supervisor, and, and uh, he'll say, look, you know, let your partner drive. Y'all get up there. You're out of the rotation. And when you get up to your station, uh, go get some rack time um those that downtime policy also uh is is intended for the 24-hour trucks the people that run 24 hour the trucks that run 24-hour shifts uh but it's also available to use for the 12-hour trucks because you know some of our 12-hour trucks are going to get long transfers and some god forbid some of them come back to back you get a a six-hour round trip transport and then you know you clear and then you get another six-hour round trip transport and they really strive to not you know, uh, give you two long distance transports in a shift, but sometimes it happens. Uh, and, and when that does happen, um, if you're, if you're getting fatigued, they'll, they'll allow those, those 12 hour crews to, to say uncle and, and get some downtime as well. Um, and the other thing is, is there, it's not really, uh, um, you can't write a blanket policy on it and says after X number of calls, you can, you know, you can call downtime or X number of hours on duty. Uh, it, um, <clears throat> the 24 hour trucks, you know, it, it's, uh, that, that sort of thing is, uh, expected that, uh, sometimes you'll become fatigued on a 12 hour truck that their assumption is, is that you come to work rested and that you're good to go for the next 12 hours. Um, doesn't always work out that way. Uh, but we also have, we also have policies that you can't work longer than, than, uh, uh a certain, uh, a set time. Uh, if you work, typically work a 12 hour truck, the max you can work in a row is 18 hours. You can work your shift and half of another one and you can't work. You can't pull a double. Uh, you can't pull a 24 back to back, uh, 
two 12-hour shifts back-to-back. Uh, if you work a 24-hour uh, truck, you can only work 36. Um, you can't pull a 48. Um, but that, they, they try to keep the, the number of hours you work uh, without rest uh, yeah. to, to an absolute minimum. Um, but, you know, you find so many other EMS agencies out there that don't do that. And not only do they work 48 and 72 hour shifts, they're running their butts off, uh, the entire time. You know, I'm, I have the luxury of being in a system where once our trucks reach a certain UHU, uh, they're converted to 12 hour trucks. We'll hire more people. We'll put on extra shifts and, and that truck will become a 12 hour truck. So if you're working a 24 hour shift at Acadian, uh, it, it's, it's virtually guaranteed that you know, on average, you're a low volume truck and you don't run much. Um, but, uh, that's not the case in many places. You know, I know of, of some of our, our, uh, our, uh, colleagues that they're out there working a 48 hour stretch and they're running 10, 12 transports a day. Uh, that's just not yeah. acceptable. You know, but one of the things too, is that we need to look at is a lot of these, a lot of these providers trying to make ends meet. They're working all these long hours and putting themselves in jeopardy because they've got to put food mm-hmm. on the table. Working and a second job. And, right. And so that. let me ask you this, though, because I think one of the things that you brought up is we talked about, you know, the organization. So we, we know what our own personal uh, responsibilities need to be and, and we need to be able to keep ourselves safe and, and the public safe and, you know, make sure that we get home. But now when we think about, because you mentioned the organization, and I think Acadian has a really great approach to, uh, you know, making sure that you guys are going to stay, you know, awake and and, uh, safe Mm -hmm. as you can. But when we think about developing a culture of safety within an organization, it really goes beyond just fatigue. I mean, it goes, it's lifting, it's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's all the things that go into. um, It's a comprehensive program. Exactly. So when we think about that, there are a lot of programs out there that don't have um, you know, safety programs. And a lot of times when we hear that, I mean, even our road safety systems, I mean, we hate those black boxes that growl at us and Mm -hmm. tick at us, you know, when we're, but, but they're there for a reason. They're there to protect us. They're there to, you know, protect the public, to protect the patient. And rather than, you know, we're getting irritated when we're having to listen to all that noise. Mm Mm-hmm. We can't find our key fob. We don't know where it is. Go ahead and let me uh-huh. use your key fob. And, you know, you're doing all those yeah. things. I mean, how do you develop a culture of safety? I mean, you think about what that means. And so throughout your organization, you've now developed this, this you know, feeling or this this sense of pride, or I don't even know how to describe it, but that everybody buys into the fact that a culture of safety is where we need to be. Well, um, it's, it's tough. And, and like any culture change, uh, you know, Nancy is fond of saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, you can have the best leadership vision in the world, but if, unless you get your employees to buy into it, that vision is not going to come to fruition. So the, you have to change the culture. And the only way in sadly, in some places is through attrition. Uh, if you can't, if you're not charismatic enough and the, and the plan is not well thought out enough and, and compelling enough to convince your existing workforce that they need to buy into this, it's for in their best interests, uh, and things are going to be better after it's implemented, then the only other way I see is to um, get new people. You know, I'm not suggesting that you fire people. But the only way you're, you're actually eventually going to, to get people to buy into that culture that you're trying to, to foment is uh, have new people 
uh, hired who, who that is the only experience they have with your organization from the very beginning. You know, they come into that uh, with that understanding and that culture in place, um, whereas, the, you know, the older employees see it as a change. Um, right now, for example, we're getting, we're getting drive cams. Acadians buying drive cams and installing them in their ambulances. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have a very uh, excellent safety record, and, and, and uh, my, my area of Acadian is, is usually one of the top performers. We won the safest division in the company award uh, several times in the last few years. But, but we've seen a lot of pushback from employees, uh, and the rumors have already started. You know, so-and-so, somebody's brother's cousin's paramedic friend in another area got written up for something that was said on, in, the, in the cab of the ambulance uh, that they were eavesdropping on them with the drive cam. You know, and, and that sort of thing, that's the kind of pushback you get uh, unless you can make people see uh, that that is not going on. And it requires some really, you know, effective, charismatic uh, leadership and some good convincing. Unless you can make people see uh, that sort of thing is not going on, um, the only other method is to, is to hire new people where that's just the expectation when they came in. That's what they signed on the dotted line uh, knowing. Um, so yeah, attrition is probably the only way to do it. You know? I think it's hard to do that, though, when you're trying to make response times and, and people are just uh, – and organizations are just putting people in the seat so mm-hmm. they can uh, keep the rubber on the road. You know, one of the well, things – Well, but that's – you know, uh, let, me, let me interrupt you, and I hate to, I hate to do it. <laughs> I'm normally very polite and let you finish. Yeah, but, I'm sure but you see, hate to do but it. But see, that's, that's, that's part of the problem as well because – the, the the predatory EMS companies that work their people to death for, for what seems like a good wage uh, right up to the point where you realize how work hard you're working to earn it um, know that paramedics and EMTs are a disposable workforce. You get pissed off, you quit, um, you go to another agency or you go out with an injury or, or you just get burned out on EMS. There are 10 people waiting in line right behind you. And they can hire them, and and they'll eat the crap sandwich that you refuse to eat, and that's why the cultures don't change, and that's why you still see forty eight and seventy two hour shifts and people getting run ragged. But isn't that uh, also the age of the organization? Go ahead. Uh, uh, the age of the organization. Well, the age me. of the workforce. I mean, because age I'm as a nineteen year old kid, a twenty one year old kid, I'm going to stay up for twenty four hours. I'm not even going to sleep. But when I get to be well, thirty, I don't know that I could do that anymore. Forty, I don't know that I could do that anymore. Well, you know, and, and it's also a change in the in the demographics of the workforce. We're getting more and more millennials, you know, and, and um, uh, one of the EMS pundits the other day said something that was that was particularly pithy. She said, uh, um, "EMS or money still talks, but to millennials, it only whispers." Um, so, you know, good pay is is still uh, is still a a pretty good motivating factor and, and a pretty good weapon to wield. I agree. But uh, the millennial workforce is still uh, is one of these people that also looks for quality of life right. uh, as well, and and uh, they're different than we were. You know, we were like, you know, work hard, uh, company first, uh, job and or company first and family and everything else second, um, and and uh, work hard, earn, make good money, provide for your family. That's how you become a good father and a good family member and that sort of thing. And that's not the way millennials think. Um, but the good news is, you know, culture change is not all that uh, – doesn't take all that long. You know, there was the – in our EMT survey that said that the uh, – some years back that the – the career span of the average EMT is five years. 
you know, we, we are still a fairly high turnover workforce. Right. Um, so uh, it, it's not something that takes 20 years to implement. You know, in, in three or four or five years, uh, you've got a new set of people coming in. You know, but one of the things that I want to push back on is that when we think about uh, uh, developing a culture, a culture can develop in, in less than 120 days. Yeah, but it takes about three years to break that culture once it starts. So, mm-hmm. and just I want to I want to define culture because I know you say you know uh, culture is strategy for breakfast, and that's a quote from uh, Peter Drucker. Peter, from, Peter yeah. Drucker, yeah. But but one of the things that I want to say is this: you set a goal, and this will come from the mm-hmm. organizational side. You set a goal, and then you develop strategic plans to reach that goal. So there's the strategy. Mm-hmm. And then the culture is how you how the organization behaves on the way to reaching the strategy. So when we mm-hmm. say developing a culture of safety, what we're really saying is we're developing a behavior of safety. So, mm-hmm. um, and when Kelly says, uh, quotes uh, uh, Peter Drucker and Nancy McGee, it is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. We can have the best plans possible Mm-hmm. But unless we're behaving the way that we need to to make those plans and those goals happen, we're going to fail every time. And uh, yeah. so I think that that's a, a good point in this uh, in this scenario. But uh, all it sounds too, like all we too gotta... often, yeah, all too often the way the what what management perceives as the culture of the agency is simply how their employees act when management is looking. It's not the actual culture of the agency. It's just how they behave when management is looking. And, and, and if they're not in touch with their, with their workforce and, and watching closely um, and, and leading rather than just managing, the, that's the kind of thing that goes on. It's, it's, not a, uh, it's not a culture change at all. It's just window dressing. Yeah, but I think that you know we, we learned about that in, in uh, uh, sociology, psychology, yeah. when they, we talked about the Horthon effect. And as long as we're watching it, but you know what? That's where accountability comes from. Accountability comes from supervision. Accountability comes from expectation. Accountability comes from holding people accountable to the expectations. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's something that we don't do enough. We're quick to point a finger at people, but what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to recognize that people are following our policies, that people are actually trying to make us better. And I'll say this again, Mm -hmm. and I've said it, you know, a, a couple hundred times in the hundred and you know thirty three episodes is that the the mark of true leadership, how I'm going to be measured as a leader, isn't the fact that I can do a budget, isn't the fact that I can get the vehicles in for preventive maintenance, isn't the fact that I can uh, work a schedule. I'm going to be measured on my leadership effectiveness by the effectiveness of the workforce, how satisfied mm-hmm. they are, how engaged they are, how productive they are, and the mm-hmm. and how they deliver the highest quality of patient care to the to the citizens that we serve. And well, you know, we've got to be able to set our mm-hmm. organization up for success, meaning we've got to be able to set our workforce up for success and we've got to give them the tools and polish them and help them reach their goals so they can give us the very best that they can so the patients get the very best that they can but when we talk about developing a culture of safety if we're not putting our employees first and their health and their safety and their well-being i got to tell you as a leader i am not putting my uniform on and having to go to somebody's house and tell them that their husband wife son daughter isn't coming home anymore yeah well you know and and that is that's the key 
to, to fostering that safety culture is, is the, the, you know, adjust culture, recognizing what your, when your system flaws are responsible for a, a bad outcome or a bad event, uh, rather than the employee. Um, that's extremely important. But the other part is, is the servant leadership. Um, it's easy to get buy-in, as Nancy would say, when your employees believe, uh, actually believe that you have their best interests at heart. Um, and there's no better way to demonstrate that than, of course, you know, pay is great. But uh, other little things, little simple uh uh, gestures like if if your crews are stacked up at a particular ER and you got four crews on the wall there uh, um, with their stretchers parked with patients on them and and uh, there's no bed space you know go up there and bring them some water bring them a bottle of Gatorade if you if you've had a crew that's uh, you know go have a uh, talk with the ER nursing manager and see if you can get your crews cleared um, if your crews can't clear and it's lunchtime you know the supervisor will walk down to the to the cafeteria and get them a meal tray and then usher them to the to the nursing uh, the ER break room and say here grab yourself something to eat and I'll watch your patient until uh, until we get a, a bed space assigned to you, you know what we used to do at MedStar you know, Kelly that sort of thing you know, that sort of thing goes a long way what what did they do at MedStar back, at, back in the old days before electricity when I was working at MedStar and mm-hmm. you got to remember too if you're four deep in the hospital that's a hospital problem and oh yeah from huge. the leadership side and I know we're getting off task here and this is going to be my final thought before I kick it to you for a close is from the leadership side, you need to go to the hospital administration and say, if you can't take care of these patients in, in a timely manner, we're going to have to start taking these patients somewhere else because we've got to think of patient advocacy. We do that, actually. Yeah, so we, one we, of the we, things that we, we did at MedStar was if we were four deep and there was a, a paramedic around that who maybe didn't have a partner, we would send the paramedic over we would take report from the paramedic who was there and we would manage the two or three patients that were there until they took report. Awesome. Yeah. So kind of think about that. But anyway, uh, I know we got off task here, but I think we got a really great show next yeah. week. Uh, and I'm going to give it to you for closing. Uh, you are on the EMS world tour right now doing your thing mm-hmm. in, uh, at the New Jersey EMS conference. We will yep. be traveling to uh, Texas EMS. Dallas, I'm, Texas. Yeah. I'm not speaking, but you are, and I'm going to be sitting in the front row shooting spitballs at you. <laughs> and uh, we are going to record on Monday and uh, have the show ready for Wednesday for the holiday. So you guys have that. But uh, Kelly, 133 shows in the book and let's get out of here. Yeah, 133. My, how time flies. But we'd like to know what you think. What is important in, in fostering a culture of safety uh, in an EMS agency? And, and how do we go about doing it? Uh, give us your thoughts, comments, concerns, and questions at the show at ems1.com. Go rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Sevalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week. 